Listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kirk. At the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car's been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Westerns in my time, but never one like the War Wagon. The War Wagon is a story about friendship and understanding. You're worth 12,000 to me. Dead. And 100,000 alive. The War Wagon is a story of happiness. <laughs> it offers you a little action. Generosity. Oh. <laughs> a little fighting. The war wagon is a story of humility. Mine hit the ground first. Mine was taller. In addition to Kirk Douglas, we have Howard Keel, a mighty colorful Indian. Robert Walker, an expert with high explosives. Keenan Wynn. <laughs> Joanna Barnes. What's your pleasure? Stud. And good old Bruce Cabot. I want Todd Jackson dead. Keep your eyes off of my wife. Your wife? Oh, I thought she was your daughter. Well, she ain't. A drunk kid and a crazy old man. How the hell did I get out, all of you? I didn't bring you here to be the best of friends. We're an inch away from gunning each other down, but first we have to take the war away. this picture is all about. How a handful of men can work up the guts and ingenuity to tackle a fortress on wheels. Look at those horses, what are they dragging? Heavily guarded, what is that wagon? War wagon, what is it for? War wagon, what is it for? All men are fighting for us, struggling for searching for us, striving for a wagon full of Hello, Florida. I'm Ken Squire, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Send the way back machine. Yes, sir, Mr. Peabody.
Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned in to Nostalgic Green Room Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers to Google10talk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Evening, Tommy. How you doing? Good evening, Robert. Just wonderful. Just wonderful. So, uh, oh, yeah, don't forget to uh, check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com. Did I say that already? Anyways, I'll say it again. Check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com, and you can find out all about us. Don't forget, if you missed any of our past shows, don't forget to go to our archive page, which is basically a podcast, which is where all our old shows are stored for you to listen to. So, Tommy, so... uh, All 390... Well, yeah, there's 390 right now, but there's like two more that I haven't uploaded yet because I got a little issue with my computer right now, so I got to figure out. I, I, Bobby's away at school, so it's like I can't figure this out by myself. That's your issue? That's my issue. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like, uh, I mean, you know, like, give me wrenches, paper clips, screwdrivers, a set of points, plugs, condenser, carburetor. You know, I can fix that crap. I mean, it's mechanical. You know, I can see that. Uh, give me some minor electrical, and I'm sure Alan will dispute this, but some minor electrical stuff where I can check it with an ohm meter or something like that or check voltage. I'm capable of that. But beyond that, no. But really, in a way, I don't really – it's like I am i couldn't care less. I mean, like as far as I'm concerned, didn't Tesla just shoot off a rocket today? That is correct. With a bunch of Teslas on it? One car on it. That's all? Yes, his uh, personal red sports car, it said. Is he going to drive it up there? Or I mean, that was probably There's that first. a uh, crash test dummy in the driver's seat. Okay, all right. Well, let's tell you what. They just line them Teslas up and shoot them all. In fact, I'm going to have to get my darling little girlfriend on the radio show again, and that is Miss Lauren Fix, the car coach. And since her and I, it's um, been a while, but we need to do some Tesla bashing. And uh, so I had to laugh because when we were out in uh, Arizona uh, last month, Bob Lutz was one of the um, guest speakers there. And he wasn't too fond of Tesla from the standpoint of the way he's running his business. Uh, You know, his business model doesn't make sense. Now, the cars, I will give him credit. You know, the electric car, he's really pushed it. He's got it going. But keep in mind, people, guys, uh, and Bob, you too, you know. Everybody that's throwing these electric cars out there, you've conned the government, which is basically the taxpayers, into us funding those pieces of crap. You know, when you get an eight, nine, ten thousand dollar tax rebate, who pays for that? We do. We the taxpayers. I don't want those electric pieces of junk on the road. And I can tell you from a dealer standpoint, they have no resale value, no Prius, no hybrids, none of these cars. The problem is the cost of the battery, their battery replacement is too expensive. Now, maybe down the road. And again, it's a corporate thing. You know, when they get the cost of the batteries down, then maybe batteries, battery-operated cars might work. But, you know, there's other alternatives. There's hydrogen, which they're still working on perfecting that. There's natural gas. There's propane. There's other alternatives. So my theory or my my position is gasoline, which we've had this debate many, many times, and I'm going to get somebody on the radio show that really knows gasoline and talk can talk about fuels and alternative fuels. I have a gentleman in town that is uh, willing and able and prepared to talk about that. But at the moment, gasoline is the ideal fuel. And diesel is the next best thing because diesel is basically, meh, all right, don't take this the wrong way, but it's basically gasoline after birth. That's kind of what it is. It's like at the bottom of the barrel when they crack it, as they say, you know, like you do moonshine. In fact, tonight, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have a gentleman on and we're going to be talking about the Daytona 500 and moonshine and all those little fun little things and some great stories. So uh, don't forget to uh, stay tuned for that and tell your friends. Now, real quick, let's go to the Florida Car Show Minute or the FLA Car Show's Minute because here's what's going on this 
week. Now, if you guys are into exotics and uh, really cool cars and a very, very high-end style car show down in Naples this weekend, it's called Cars on the 5th, okay? So it's put on by the the Naples Ferrari Club, but there's going to be all kinds of really cool exotics. They're very, very high-end, and they rope off 5th Avenue down there. I've never been to it. This is my first time I'm attending it, so I'm looking forward to it. It's supposed to be pretty cool. Also, our good friends at the National Mustang Racing Association, their big event is at Bradenton March 1st that weekend and the national muscle car association they're the following weekend so they'll be tearing up the tracks of brady's motorsports don't forget to check out our website because we do have that stuff listed on our events page also our good friends from carlisle will be doing the carlisle winter festival so for all you swap me junkies like myself don't forget to check that out the daytona 500 is in two weeks and the Sumter County Swap Meet is this weekend, and it's the three-day extravaganza. So, again, for all you Swap Meet parts junkies like me, that's where we need to be. So that's where I'll be probably Friday. And then Saturday, I'm going to go down to uh, Naples. And then Sunday, I'm thinking there's something else going on that I'm not aware of. But uh, So that's it. If you want to find out more about all the stuff that's going on, don't forget to check out the Florida Car Show's .com website. That's where all the car shows are that are taking place in the state of Florida. Now... Um, well, time flies when you're having fun. 715, 740, 715, 41, 42, 43 already. Okay. And uh, this past weekend, my son and I were in Orlando. A big shout out to Morty and the Orlando International Guitar and Music Festival. It was a great, great, great success. Um, saw a lot of really cool guys there. A lot of really cool instruments. Big shout out to Stevie B's. Big shout out to Clay's. He was there. The guys from uh, Guitar Center were up there. Let's see who else was up there. Mike Bulware, he's uh, from uh, Gainesville. They're getting ready, and I guess I can talk about it now. But they're working on putting a museum, a, a music museum together in Gainesville, and it's dedicated to and really, guys, there's a lot of big-name talent besides Tom Petty that came out of Orlando, our uh, Gainesville area, and, you know, that surrounding area north of uh, Sanford and stuff. In fact, um, who else from Sanford? I, th- I think Dave Jenkins from Pablo Cruz. He's from that area. Um, a number of members of the uh, Tom Petty bunch. And uh, obviously, you know, we had Jacksonville. We had uh, Leonard Skinner, and we had Molly Hatchet, and uh, I think Blackfoot, you know, some of the members. So they're all scattered around from Central Florida up there. So that's pretty cool. So that uh, as that materializes, we will definitely keep you in the running on that because we are uh, definitely music fans and obviously musical instruments. So that was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, the guys from uh, Ken from uh, Replay Music, they were over there. They had a bunch of their stuff, too. So there was some pretty cool stuff. And, of course, my good friend, guitar brokers Craig, he was there, and Pete from Orlando Mustang. So here's a big shout-out to Pete at Orlando Mustang. So if you really want your Mustang restored, you go to Pete. Uh, another place right here locally, Forte's Automotive or Forte's Garage, Classic Car Garage, right here. They restore Mustangs. They're good friends of ours. And uh, so look them up. We have uh, some information on their website. Anyway, let's see. What do we got? Uh, we got a guest we want to get on the show here. So I think what we're going to do is since we do the normal commercials, we're going to kind of skip the commercials. We'll just go to some music. We'll play a little clip. Let's go ahead and get our guest on the phone. Why? You got something? I have a question. Sure. For what's you? the question? I saw you went to a new um, bar oh. and grill. Well, here's the deal. Yeah. On Wednesday nights uh, over at Brady's Backyard Barbecue in downtown Safety no, Harbor. No, this was a Ford's Garage or oh, something? Oh, Ford's Garage. Yeah, that was uh, – yeah, a big shout-out about that. There's uh, – over in Lakeland – no, over in Brady, Brandon, there was a, a garage over there. It's a theme garage, and it's actually licensed and themed 
uh, Ford. And uh, but it's all vintage stuff. It's like Model A stuff. So that would be 1928 to 31, because 32 was the first year for the V860. And uh, so they now have one in Wesley Chapel. But yes, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we have one right here in Countryside. So it's the old Fuddruckers building. If you remember where that is. So if you go up on 19. Right off Enterprise, if you go to the left, on the opposite side, let's say that would be the west side of the road where Cody's is, right in the old building, the exact same location where... Um, Behind the brewery place. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's a brewery. Well, yeah, is there one up there? Well, anyway, so it's where Fuddruckers used to be. Fuddruckers. I can have some fun with that name. Anyway, all right. Be careful. <laughs> Be care- yeah, this is a family show. Okay, so, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and uh, wind up something on the... Uh, the old uh, record player. Yeah, hey, I dig this song. Hey, you're tuning into Nostalgic Reading Cars. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. And we got some racing talk and some moonshine talk coming your way. Towns, bootleggers chewed joints, popped up all around. Souped up cars, ripped out back seats. Revenue was roadblocks on the main street, y'all. Lay a little bit with the runner up the road. Gas up the cars and get an equal load. Fender to fender, as fast as you can go. First one to the drop, he picks up the dough. Breakneck speeds, twisted mountain roads. A new sensation was about to explode. Good old boys out having some fun Going head to head on a midnight run A stock car, a man raising for his life It all started with a batch of Carolina moonshine Junior Johnson new shine and a new cost too Lou Allen and Blair paid their dues Legends of the hills, fathers of stock car Never dream racing would come this far on Twisted mountain roads, a new sensation was about to explode. Good old boys out having some fun, going head to head on a midnight run. A stock car, a man raising for his life. It all started with a batch of Carolina Yeah. Trying to stay out of sight The revenue remains looking for you tonight Riding the gears under a midnight moon You better hurry back boys We got a job to do Breakneck speeds, twisted mountain roads A new sensation was about to explode Good old boys out having some fun Going head to head on a midnight run A stock car, a man racing for his life It all started with a batch of Carolina Started with a batch of Carolina moonshine Oh yeah Pappy's cold squeezes, you know Don't get caught now, boys Now, we'll all climb 
calm down. Oh, he's just a little excited. I know, I know. I'm going to use good judgment. I haven't lost my temper in 40 years. But Pilgrim, you caused a lot of trouble this morning. Might have got somebody killed. And somebody ought to belt you in the mouth. But I won't. I won't. The hell I won't. This is Ed Justice, Jr., President and CEO of Justice Brothers Incorporated. You're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back, and it's time to uh, introduce our next guest. And, yep, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, race fans, next week is the Daytona 500. So, tonight, we have a very special guest. This guy used to build some serious NASCAR engines. He's also the host of a radio show called Our Racing Heroes. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening the legendary... Bill Blair, Jr. Bill, how you doing? I'm doing great, man. Well, I'll tell you what. You've got a, uh, a, a chest full of history behind you. You come from a legendary family. So why don't you just start from the beginning and give us a little background? Because your dad's been around since day one, since the beginning of NASCAR. He helped Bill France get NASCAR off the ground, owned a couple of racetracks, won the 1953 Daytona. So go ahead. Tell us some stories. Well, I guess you might say I grew up in racing and... They built a racetrack right across the street from the dairy farm. And uh, the first race there at the old High Point Speedway uh, is a one-mile dirt track. And the Bill France, Lord C., Roy Hall, and so many of the greats were there. And that's where my daddy met them before the war. And uh, being we had a farm, they all came over, and, and my daddy gave them free milk, fed them. They slept under the pin oak trees out there in front of the dairy barn and milk house. And... That's where it began with me anyway, and um, I was three years old, of course, and I didn't remember everything, but uh, from then on, as I got older, uh, in 47, after the war, my daddy built his own racetrack right next to the old mile track, and all those great drivers, including Bill France, were there, and uh, Bill France had started an organization called NCSCC, National Championship Stock Car Circuit, and my daddy sanctioned with him. And uh, had all the great drivers there at the High Point uh, Tri-City Speedway. And uh, that's where it began with me. And, and uh, they were my heroes. And I worshipped those guys. And In fact, in third grade, I failed in third grade. All I could think about was racing. And, and the teachers, they couldn't teach me a thing, but I told them about racing. But, uh, golly, uh, Having grown up in it like that, I just I just loved it to death. So I followed my daddy everywhere he went. That he let me go, and that meant I went, you know, all over the country, Langhorne, Pennsylvania, Daytona Beach, Florida, and just everywhere. And uh, you know, I watched him and I learned under him uh, how to build engines. Of course, they were the flathead Ford engines. And my first thing I learned was while he's rotating the motor, check that don't stick your finger in on the crankshaft. It'll get between the pan rail in the counterweight to mash your finger and he turned me loose he had to bank, uh, back the crankshaft up to get my finger out of there and I took off and running wow. and I was probably five six years old but uh, that's where I learned so much and, and, and the guys back then Robert they just uh, they did a lot with not many tools you know the, the things back then were in this infancy and if you had a, a wooden floor or a clean <laughs> shop I mean, that was a, a luxury, but most of them, you know, did it out under the oak tree, uh, around the farm somewhere or another, and uh, that's how they did it. 
And uh, I'll just give you an example of something that I watched, and years later it meant something to me. Um, we grew up on a farm, as I said, and in front of the old bull barn, there was a tremendous, I mean, a tremendous old oak tree. It had limbs on it, bigger around than your body. And out the end, it was so heavy, they dragged the ground, you had to keep cutting them off. But my daddy used that tree to pull the engines in and out or pick the car up or whatever they needed to do with a big old chain horse. And uh, one day, uh, he got some lumber from the farm, uh, excess lumber that was left over, and built some platforms and backed that board up to the oak tree and put a chain on the rear bumper and raised it up in the air and put bare rims on it, and they greased them real well and put them on there. And uh, he let the car down on these platforms he'd built and took a big chain and tied the rear bumper to the tree. And uh, there was two guys there helping him, Bub and Wes Hedgecock, and uh, Wes's son, Jay Hedgecock, become a very good race car driver and chassis guy. He built some cars for the petties, and I know children tried to hire him. But anyway, uh, they they uh, had a big old oil can like it used to, uh, all the railroad hoppers, you know, and it, it helped about a quarter more. And uh, it already greased the rims, and they put some cylinder heads and stuff in the trunk, and one of the Hitchcock boys, I believe it's Bub, got in the car and cranked it up, put it in gear. And uh, his brother, Wes, had that hopper oil can, and he'd go from side to side to keep the rims oiled. And they put that thing geared open, wide open, and my daddy'd get under the hood and knock the distributor back and forth with a long screwdriver and a hammer. And he'd loosen the bolts that helped that distributor. And he tuned stuff by ear. And they had a very primitive RPM gauge. Uh, I guess it was Stuart Warner. That was about your first. And that's what they'd go by. And uh, when it was turning most RPM, Bub would, you know, wave at him. My daddy would look up and see, you know, and, and he'd beat on the side door to get my daddy's attention. And I'd stand there and watch all that and then cut it off. And they'd talk about it. In the meantime, I'd run over there and, take my hand and reach in there with my fingernails and scrape ice off the intake manifold. And the exhaust pipes would still be red hot as they come out of the block on that flathead forward. And you could watch them cool, cool off, you know, and go back to just being uh, bare metal, you know. They had been red hot. But I was just amazed by that. And then... Uh, you know what that is? That That's a primitive dynamometer is what they did. It, it really is. And that's 1947, 1948 he did that. And... Uh, they, they do the same thing. He had adjustable jets. He got them from out in California somewhere, and, and he would. They give you a basic word of how many rounds to, to uh, screw the jets out after bottoming them out and lock them with a little lock. Nut. And then he'd go to just on limb, and that car sitting there running wide open, just screaming, probably turning 5,500 RPM. And uh, the flatheads didn't turn that many RPMs like they do today because you know the, the restrictive airflow airflow through those engines. Well, he'd do that maybe 15, 20 minutes. And, uh, you know, they'd talk about it, and I'd reach over again, run up there and scrape the ice off of that thing. And I'd get back while he'd run it probably 15, 20 foot. I didn't want to get too close to it, yet he was up under the hood of that thing. And they didn't run fan blades, so they were running alcohol nitrate. And uh, so the engine would, would run real, real cool doing that. But, you know... I don't know if he had ever seen a dyno in his life, but he knew at that time that uh, if you put the engine under load, you 
set the time and adjust the jet send, it run a lot better. But that's just an example of what, what those guys did. And, you know, I've got a, an artist drew me a picture of that, and I got it down there at the shop, and it says early dyno. And uh, I also I know a guy that uh, Willie Thompson, one of the first guys at Honan Moody, hired. My daddy knew him and Buddy Schumann. It's called Schumann Thompson. And he'd get a camshaft from Escadere and made him a pattern and go to the bench grinder and regrind the noses on those cams and then sat down and with a file and sandpaper and recontour the noses on them. Can you imagine that? A guy said, go to the bench grinder and regrind the cam, brand new one. But they had a theory the noses on the flathead full cam need to be square. And they were out quick, but I mean, they could get plenty of them for next to nothing. And with the sharp noses, you know, but they just, the airflow through the engine was much better than that valve wasn't going up and down through it. It was stationary probably, oh, let's say, 8 or 10 degrees of crank rotation. But just, you know, what I'm saying is they had very little to work with back then, but they they were smart people. And uh, they didn't rely upon engineers. An engineer to them was somebody that drove a train. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just how simple it was. And the cars were simple. I mean, after all, Ford didn't come out with that 32 Ford with the first V8 in 1932, and here we are in 1939, 40, starting up the, the race in these cars. After the war, uh, they really got going. And uh, you could watch each year the progress that they would make. The first cars had absolutely no safety equipment on them. I mean, you was on your own out there, and if you wanted to drive a car, all you need to do is show up to the racetrack with some tape or, or uh, shoe polish, put a number on the car, and give me an fee with probably five bucks, and uh, you was a racer. Now, a lot of them did crash. Some of them got hurt. Uh, but yet, uh, you go back in time, you study that just a little bit. The guys that was hauling liquor, uh, they, they were more car people, and they knew that uh, they knew how to slide them around the corners. Most of the streets were dirt and uh, revenue they were chases of trying to catch them. Uh, when they got to the racetrack, they were pretty well seasoned, and these were the guys that you had to beat. And I can name you a bunch of them, like the Flock Brothers, and my daddy, and Jimmy Lou Allen, Ed Samples, Gober uh, Souls. I could take all night and name you all these people that haul liquor. So they really had an advantage on people never ever get a haul liquor but uh there's a story there's a story where uh supposedly junior johnson would race barefoot and with overalls and that was it so that's as crude as they were back in the day right well what junior did when he was racing barefooted uh he was running from them they uh, he went down to crank up the steel his daddy sent him down there not knowing that the revenues are waiting on him and when he got there they fired that steel up, they, they come out and he saw him and he took off running. And I think he went through a barbed wire fence them after him. But, uh, <laughs> but Junior really, uh, you know, his daddy had the steel and uh, Junior hauled the liquor. They had a brother involved in it too, but uh, Junior was as good as they come. I mean, to me, he was a straight up down fella and you could, when he told you something, you could count on it. And I knew that he was a good friend of my daddy's uh, First time I ever saw Junior was up in 1947 at uh, Northwest Speedway. They had what they call the, the local yokel races, and most of those boys 
were people who were hauling liquor, and they drove their pickup trucks, their cars. They were not. They were. They were the cars they used on the street to haul the liquor in, more than likely. And um, I think that's the way it was. And he won one of those races, and then he got to liking it, and he got involved driving the race car. But my daddy had uh, wrecked up there, and uh, I mean he had a big wreck up there. So Dusty couldn't see, and he came off second corner, car spun out in front of us, and he broadsided it. And just as soon as he hit, Marshall Tig hit him from the rear. And uh, Junior brought that car to High Point, North Carolina, and for uh, my daddy on a flatbed truck, and they pulled up under that big oak I was telling you about, and they hooked a chain through the through the doors and the windows, uh, a little Ford coupe, and picked it up with a chain horse off the uh, flatbed truck. And that's the first time I ever seen Junior Johnson in person and, and knew who he was, yet I was still a kid. And I still see him to this day, every now and then, like at a funeral or somewhere, some races venue, or whatever. He still remembers all that. And my daddy used to go see him, visit with him, go out, and they love country ham. And it was a truck stop that had some good country ham. That's what it did. Wow. So tell some stories about some of the now your dad. Your dad actually kind of ran some liquor. So tell us a little bit about that and uh, some of those stories. Well. They're laughing about it here at some event I was at five, six years ago, and they were talking about my daddy. I'll just call him Bill. That's, there's a lot of people came to the old farmhouse that we grew up on, and uh, they called him Bill, so I didn't call my daddy Daddy. I called him Bill also, and my mother would call her Lucille because that's what all the people called him. And there'd be 8, 10, 12, 15 people there all the time. They wanted to talk about race, and they wanted to buy a liquor, and they just wanted to do whatever it might be poker game going on or something, but he, uh, you know, he hauled liquor, and his daddy was in the House of Representatives. He was a uh, uh, representative there in the, in the legislature in North Carolina. He uh, started two churches there in High Point, and he also started the Elks Club, and he had no idea what his son Bill was doing. Bill was one of the youngest of the seven boys, and they had, they had about 800-acre farm. It was a dairy farm. And uh, my daddy, uh, he, you know, he'd get up early morning, uh, get the milking done and everything, and then in the afternoon he'd shoot pool and do whatever. And uh, But anyway, uh, he had an aunt that passed away, got run over actually, and left him some money, and him and his, one of his brothers, and left the farm. So first thing he did was buy two 1932 Ford brand new ones. And he made one of them the chase car and the other one the liquor hauler. So uh, what he did, he went up to uh, Martinsville on 58 to bring back some white liquor. And it started snowing, and this was on Christmas Eve. So they got back into Martinsville, and the chase car done, you know, come down the road about five minutes before he had. And uh, But uh, they chased, they got after the chase car. And they didn't catch it, but they caught him. My daddy was coming through there, and then there was some boys sitting there. And the car was sitting low in the rear. And this is before they got wise to put helper springs and stuff on them. You know, this, like I say, it was early on, like 1932. Well, they got after him, and they come to the Dan River Bridge, and they had roped it off where he couldn't get across. So he had to spin it around in the road, and the guy, there was two revenue sitting there with shotguns. They 
spunned around, and the one that was chasing him about hit him head on. He run into the ditch, keep from wrecking, and they all took out after my daddy head back in the barn field, shooting at him, trying to shoot his tires down, and it was starting to snow. So they got up there to uh, 58 going into Martinsville. They blocked the, the streets out, and they, he was chasing him around the square, and they made it five or six laps. They finally got his tire shot down and throwed him in jail. So they said that they introduced stock car racing to Martinsville in <laughs> 1932. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Chase, you know, when they got him stopped, they drug him out of there. I mean, they didn't ask him to get out. They just reached in. The big old guy did drug him, drug him out of that car and his buddy over there. They drug him head first right up the steps, throwed him in the flammer up there. So the master would come back there and talk to him. And his buddy had enough money to, to you know, get out on bond. Well, my daddy did. And uh, he spent all his money buying the liquor. So they called his daddy there in High Point, North Carolina. And his daddy was John Branson Blair. And the master said, is this John Blair, John Branson Blair? Mr. Blair, who answered the phone, said, yes, sir, what can I do for you? And Mr. Blair was a very diplomatic man, you know, and, and uh, every word was just right, you know. He said it with authority. And so the master said, uh, have you got a son named William Ivy, uh, excuse me, William Ivy Blair? And the Mr. John Blair said, yes, sir, what is the problem? And uh, the man said, well, sir, we just caught your son up here, William Ivy Blair, with 125 gallons of non-tax-paid liquor. So Mr. Blair thought a minute, and he said, well, sir, listen to me. Let me tell you what you do. Being you caught him, you keep him. And hung up. <laughs> <laughs> so the next morning, Bill's mother, she sent the oldest boy Garland up there to get him out of jail, and it cost $10. And that's 125 gallons. And generally, you know, you, you caught that much liquor back then, you went to Chillicothe for a year and a day. That's what they sent Junior for, you know, a year and a day. So uh, they tried him in March at the Western District Court of Virginia in Danville, and, uh, and they charged him $100, but they didn't give him any time. So what had happened, Bill Steady, Mr. Blair, had, I guess, contacted somebody and called in a favor and got him out of it. Otherwise, he'd been away for a year and a day. But I know his daddy asked his mother, said, why didn't you tell me he's on liquor? She said, Wilson, I was afraid to. I didn't know what you'd say or if he'd get mad or whatever. But he he did that for the thrill of it. And I think also in his racing, he just loved to speed and he loved to race. And, and I don't think he did ever for the money. He just did it because he loved to do it. And, and most of them boys like it. And, you got to know, back in that period of time, a uh, dollar was a dollar, but those guys had a passion to race. They didn't do it, in my opinion, to make money. They just wanted to race. They loved it. They loved to get to that track and talk and get out there and race one another. And, and they could be good buddies off the track, but on the track, uh, they were fierce competitors amongst themselves. And, yeah, they had a fisty cut now then, but by and large, um, you did and uh, the biggest argument would be about where they finished because, you know, back in those days, uh, score was very crude, and they never got a handle on until the 60s, and, you know, they kept trying different things to, to cut down on the arguments. Um, they would have a guy, as a car come by, write his number down. That's how they done it, keep order like it. And the uh, tracks were dusty, and if 
there's a lot of traffic. Sometimes they could get used. And then later on, they you, you brought a score with you many times. It'd be your wife. Your wife was not always the most honest person in the world. And she could gain you a few positions if not win you a race. NASCAR <laughs> caught on to that in the 50s uh, in a short track race. And uh, I don't want to embarrass nobody, but anyway, I won't call the name. The next race, they required two scores. I mean, the wife's I mean, just too obvious what was going on when they <laughs> called them. So that's, you know, that's the way it was. And, and my daddy, he raced all over the country and drove for different people. And uh, the modified were beginning to get, you know, to find the 39 Ford and the 40 Ford, that was your best race car in that period of time. And, and they were beginning to be hard to find. And so after the war, they come back and, and racing really took off 1946-47. They built a lot of racetracks. My daddy and his brother built their own racetrack. They were building them everywhere here in the South. And uh, I think actually there was more racing in the, from Georgia up to the Carolinas and Virginia than anywhere else in the country. And, of course, my daddy did go to Florida and race them guys down there. He knew uh, Bill Snowden and Skip Hersey. I think they were from around Jacksonville, somewhere like that. But uh, he knew Jack Smith down that way, different ones. But he went all over the country racing and went to Phoenix, Arizona, New York. He loved to go. It didn't make no difference to him. And no interstate. And those guys, a lot of them went places and never took a map. Uh, if they found out, you know, 29 and Highway 1 went north-south and uh, Highway 64 out of here went west, and they went by direction. And... Uh, they must have had a lot of Indian in them because <laughs> I know my daddy could find a shortcut around most towns without a map. And they, that's the way they grew up doing it. And maps back then cost money. And, uh, you know, the letter and, and everything was real big. I mean, you didn't need a pair of glasses to read it. <laughs> but uh, they began to run out of those cars. And Bill France. Uh, he, he called Ford Motor Company up and asked them to consider rebuilding or making some new 39 Ford. And the conversation went something like, well, you know, appreciate it, but we're in the business of building new cars. It wouldn't look good on our behalf. We start, you know, building our old cars that we'd made some years ago. So France, who had started out being a race car driver, and got roped in to promote some races uh, down in Daytona because the JCs failed in their endeavor to do it and make money. And um, so he was driving a car for Raymond Parks, and Red Bolt kept it up, and that car was a gray. And up at the uh, 1941 race here in High Point, North Carolina, that mile track, he turned it over, damn near killed himself. So that ended up his driving career, and he decided that he'd be a you know, be better at uh, promoting. Well, anyway, uh, France, he was a promoter. He was, he was a man for the time, and it just so happened that I don't know if anybody else could have done what he did, but uh, the drivers liked him. They got along well with him, and France was a very likable person. When you, if you didn't know him and you walk up and join the conversation, it's just like, well, you'd known him for years, and he was your friend. So he would start promoting uh, mainly at the fire grounds like the uh, Winston-Salem State Fire Grounds, the Greensboro Fire Grounds, the Raleigh Fire Grounds. 
And uh, there was a fireground track over yonder in Charlotte called uh, Ed Stake Firegrounds. And then as they began to build tracks, like my daddy, and uh, of course he knew Bill Friend, but uh, he had a, a head start on most of them, like Bruce Smith and uh, the Dixie Circuit. And uh, Sam Nunes of AAA, they were trying to run some races down here. But France was just one of the guys. So he said, what are we going to do? What do you think about let's just running some new cars, give it a trial, see what people think of it. So I believe down in Jacksonville, Florida, or some way down that way, could have been West Palm, but uh, during a regular race down there, they got some new cars out and run some of them around the track racing one another, and, and the fans act like they really liked it. Well, uh, he went around talking about that, and there was another group up in New Jersey that had a circuit uh, calling it the Strictly Stock. And maybe he found out about it. Maybe he got the idea about it. But if you'll go back to the old speed ages, in the 40s, you'll see that that really uh, was up in New Jersey where they had the Strictly Stock race, and that's where it started. And so he talked to everybody down here and said, you know, uh, this, this might work, and if it does, this will be our future. And, uh, well, he, he decided to do it. Everybody encouraged him that they thought it would work. So in uh, June 1949, at New Charlotte Speedway, which was a dirt track in Charlotte on Wilkerson Boulevard, two bootleggers from Kernsville, North Carolina, built that track, and they got Bill France to sanction it. And so it was mentioned in a few newspapers that, Bill France was going to try and experiment with new automobiles, call it Strictly Stock, and it was built as an experiment. Well, my daddy, they always been running the Modifieds, and uh, that was your major draw as your major uh, racing circuit at that time. It involved running the Modifieds, and eventually they started running Sportsman, and some of the smaller tracks like Bowman Gray, the quarter-mile tracks, they had Hobby and Jalopy. But the big draw was the Modifieds. Red Byrne, uh, driving Raymond Parks' cars built by Red Vault, the Flock Brothers, and and Ed Samples, I said, while well, I got in all that crowd, that, that was your draw. And people come to watch them run. And that was one of your tricks and hooks that Bill France used, that, hey, if we'll, if we'll stick together and, and uh, we'll go to races and guarantee that we'll have the good drivers there, the good cars, and people will come to see it, have a bigger crowd. Promoter will pay a sanction fee in, 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 in lieu of that, or in uh, the thing that be the draw for the promoter is the fact he'll, knew, he'll know that he'll have all the good drivers and he'll have more people, so therefore everybody will, will profit from it. And, of course, they would pay Bill France a sanction fee for putting the race on, bringing Al- Alvin Hawkins and Johnny Bruner there to, to run everything. And uh, so that's, they stuck together, and that's what he did. That's, that's how he done it. And, uh, you know, it, it worked. As, as proof behold, through the years, you've seen it work. So uh, he went over there that first race. He didn't know what was going to happen. And uh, my daddy got a telephone call, like on a Thursday or Friday night, and uh, it was Annie France. They were at a hotel in Charlotte. Now, remember back in those days, there was very, very few motels. Most people stayed at a hotel in town. Of course, the town's wasn't as big as you are today. 
I don't recall a motel in High Point until mid-50s or later. They all stayed at the Sheraton Hotel here in town. Well, he called my daddy, and uh, my mother answered the phone, and she said, uh, Annie France wants to talk to you. And they call her Annie B. And so my daddy got on the phone and started talking to her, and she said, uh, said Bill, said, uh, Big Bill, they all called him Big Bill. There was a lot of bills around, so to decide which one was which, uh, they always called Bill France Big Bill. I mean, you had Bill Snowden, you had Bill Sockwell, you had Bill Blair, so to know who you're talking to, they called him Big Bill. And uh, she said, Big Bill is just worried to death there's not going to be enough cars, there's not going to be any people to come and watch it. He just don't know what's going to happen. And he wanted me to call you to see if he was coming. And so my daddy said, well, put him on the phone. And he don't need to worry about that thing. He said, everybody in town over here is coming that I've talked to. And my daddy had a liquor business, so he knew how a high point. Well, Big Bill got on the phone. And, how you doing, Bill? I'm doing fine, Bill. How you doing? So, <laughs> <laughs> anyway... France told him, he said, uh, are you going to come and bring a car or anything? But they said, no. He said, the only thing I got is modified, but I'm coming. He said, Bill said, hey, uh, hop on coming. He said, everybody I talk to is going to be there. And he told him, he said, Jim Pasco, I know he's going to bring his daddy's car, so that's going to be another car. And France said he, he thought he had about 18, 19 cars so far. He was hoping to have 25 before. And uh, he said, one of the reasons I call you is that there's two guys here from Great Bend, Kansas. One of them's named Ben McIntyre, and the other one is Ben uh, Crothier, I believe it was. And one had money, and he's playboy, and the other owned the Lincoln Mercury dealer there in Great Bend, Kansas. And they got a driver, which was Jim Roper. And he said, the other car, they don't have a drive for it. And they asked me if I know somebody, and I immediately thought of you. And that's why I'm calling you drive that car for them. I said, I sure will. Be glad to. Well, they discussed the, the race and the situation, and, and my daddy assured Bill France that you're not going to have to worry. You're going to have enough cars. You'll have a good crowd. Now, prior to that race, there was a guy named Taylor Warren. T. Taylor Warren that worked here in High Point, came from up Pennsylvania, and went to work here in High Point for Autumn Studios. And the people who run and own Autumn Studios, my daddy knew them. They were personal friends. And uh, Urban Black and Margie Black, and uh, I can't call the other one, but I was thinking about him the other night. But anyway, uh, Taylor started going to races with daddy, running the modified circuit and making pictures. He loved racing. And he had gotten Taylor a job with Bill Friend. And Taylor was his second. Uh, photographer of NASCAR. Uh, there's a guy in Greensboro that was your first one, and uh, Taylor was your second one. So they went to the race. They got over there on Saturday, and uh, they'd already qualified. My daddy met the, the guys that owned that Lincoln, and they told him that we took them out on Wilkes Boulevard, and of course Jim Roper has been with us, said he would give them the fastest car. And they agreed to pool what the cars made, and then they'd give uh, Jim Roper and Eddie forty percent, and they could split that forty percent. So that's what they did, and uh, 
show back up over there on Sunday. Now, this is your very first uh, strictly stock race, which evolved into the cup racing as you know it today. But this is your very first one. Well, they get over there. It was a beautiful day. People just, it was a mob showing up. They they postponed the start of the race several times so they could try to get them all in there. And uh, Taylor was there, my daddy, of course, and uh, he's making pictures. And Bill France told Taylor Warren, he said, I want you to make a picture of the people come across the, the, the backstretch over there. The backstretch was next to Wilson Boulevard, and that's how you had to get in there. He said, I want a picture of those people coming across that track. I want to put it over my headboard in the bedroom. When I go to bed, that's going to be the last thing I look at. And then when the morning I get up, that's going to be the first thing I see. <laughs> and I, Taylor did. Whatever happened that picture, I've often wondered. I, I, I hope that the family still got it, and I wonder if they know what it what it really means or what it meant to Bill friend. But the highway patrol finally come in and told them, said, look, y'all going to have to start that race. I mean, you know, it's, it's blocked traffic, blocking up the highway. And, and see, Wilson boulevard intersected there with highway 29 north south and so they had to do something so they started that race my daddy started in the rear because he didn't qualify that car in five laps he was leading it and he led that race for 145 laps and uh he was according to what newspaper you read he's anywhere from two to four laps on the other lincoln and those two lincolns were the fastest cars over there and uh anyway he come in to get gas uh, they put a quart of oil in it. There was a bystander there that worked at the Charlotte Lincoln Mercury. He just got so involved, he wanted to help. And a lot of the cars were running hot, so he thought he just, he'd put some water in that car, so he reached over the shoulder of the guy putting the quart of oil in it and released the, the radiator cap when he did. All that pressure flowed water out of it and scalded that guy. He took his T-shirt off to grab a hold of that uh, keep burning his hands to get the pressure cap off of it. And and the guy that put the oil in it knocked it down. And so they grabbed the water boat, put water back in it, but it cracked the thermostat house. Well, the guy on the car told my daddy to go back out there and, out there and run it until it quit, that he had plenty more of it. <laughs> so he went out there and run it some more, and it, it didn't go long. And it, I believe out of the 19 cars, he didn't run the last 40 laps. He still finished 8th, ninth, 10th, somewhere like that. But... That's one of those deals that you look back in history and say, man, I wish that bystander had just <laughs> left it alone. God, I mean, he could have he could have coasted home, run just a moderate speed, won that race of ease, and then the other Lincoln ended up winning. Uh, Buddy Schumann and Hubert's car, who was four laps down to my daddy's Lincoln, uh, when daddy fell out, then the other Lincoln had to slow down because it started running hot. And so that left. Uh, I said, Buddy Schumann, I met Glenn Dunaway driving Hubert Westlands. It was a liquor car, 46 Ford. But it had been over there all week playing and practicing. It rained off and on, and they finally got all the cars qualified, but nobody paid any attention to that car, Hubert. And Hubert was really not a race car driver, but Hubert was a very good car builder and engine builder. Now, building engines back then was nothing to what it is today. Bill, we are just about up against the clock, so I feel really bad because this is a great story. We need to keep this on. Actually, somebody just sent me a text saying I need to share this interview, this story with uh, the France family. But, Bill, so who ultimately won? The other other Lincoln actually won the race then? Uh, 
it did because they disqualified Hubert. He sued him and lost in court to Bill France over in Greensboro, North Carolina, because it's supposed to be strictly stock, and it had a helper spring on the rear to help keep the liquor up, you know. Hmm. It, it, that, that's what cost him the race. And uh, Bill France felt bad about it. He gave Hubert another opportunity there at the Southern 500 for that car Johnny Mance drove. But if you want to one day call, we can continue these stories. Absolutely. Well, no, I want to get you back on the show. Real quick, your show, your radio show is every week, and it's our Racing Heroes, right? Well, no, we have a, a Facebook, and we go to some events recognizing the early drivers. And specifically, there's so many drivers that made a contribution to stock car racing that will never make the NASCAR Hall of Fame. So we honor these guys, and the radio show is uh, Racing. Uh, ghost track that's on iCast on the internet and uh, you can go over there on Thursday night at 7 o'clock alright well, okay Bill I want to thank you very much for taking some time out and sharing those amazing stories with us about the early days of stock car racing the stories about your legendary father Bill Blair Sr. and how he uh, started racing back in the uh, days before NASCAR even existed and, uh, again, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Rating Cars. Don't forget, every Tuesday night here on the Tan Talk Radio Network between 7 and 8 p.m. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Tell all your friends. Tune in. And, hey, I want to see you guys at some of the car shows. Stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family.